Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, July 23rd. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Rising coronavirus infections and a state of emergency in Tokyo not stopping the Olympics from getting underway. The Games kicking off from Japan as First Lady Jill Biden and other dignitaries celebrate the ceremonial start to the planet's biggest sporting event. Back here in the U.S., healthcare providers and frontline workers once again reporting an onslaught of cases as the Delta variant spreads across the country among the unvaccinated. And the fight for freedom continues in Cuba as sanctions are leveled by the White House against members of the Cuban government. And much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. Let the games begin. The wait now over as the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo officially kick off. This amid growing concerns about COVID-19 cases on the rise in the Japanese capital, the virus even detected within the Olympic Village. After a year-long delay, the Olympics opening ceremony officially kicking off, involving about 11,000 athletes from over 200 countries and regions. Mask-wearing athletes paraded into the biggest sporting spectacle since the coronavirus took hold in 2020. For Team USA, four-time Olympic basketball gold medalist Sue Bird and baseball player Eddie Alvarez given the honor to be their country's flag bearers. But it was a very different ceremony from previous ones. Instead of a stadium packed with family and fans, spectators have been banned from the 68,000-seat arena. The global pandemic remaining a looming cloud over the Games. Now at least 110 accredited individuals testing positive. The only crowd allowed inside? About 950 people, including government officials, VIPs and foreign dignitaries. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden is also present, leading the American diplomatic delegation to the Tokyo Olympics. The First Lady can be seen here, hosting a virtual chat with some U.S. Olympic athletes at the U.S. Embassy Ambassador Residence. It's not just fans and family who will be watching from home, with athletes required to arrive in Tokyo no more than five days before the start of their event, some of them watching from their own living rooms as well. Yeah, I'm just going to put on my USA gear and, you know, just pretend that I'm there and still, you know, get the experience at home. Meanwhile, a different scene outside of Tokyo's National Stadium. Protests erupting just moments before the opening ceremony. Hundreds taking to the streets in opposition to the competition amid rising COVID-19 cases. In Japan, only 20 percent of the population is fully vaccinated. Tokyo recorded nearly 2,000 new COVID cases on Thursday, the highest figure since January 15th. Some of Japan's biggest corporations are now also trying to distance themselves from the Olympics. This despite spending a record of more than $3 billion. Toyota, a top Olympic sponsor, is not airing Olympic-related TV ads in Japan. Its CEO also not attending the Games. Despite the protests continuing to grow, officials say the health and safety of everyone remains at the forefront of these Olympics. One of the Olympic themes is unity in diversity. There will be nearly an equal ratio of male and female athletes in what the International Olympic Committee says will be the most gender-balanced games in history. 
The NFL is getting serious about vaccines and possible future outbreaks among teams. The league issuing a letter on Thursday saying that any outbreak among unvaccinated players or staff members will result in a forfeit for that game's of the week and will be credited as a loss if the game can't be rescheduled during the 18-week season. Also, if a game is postponed and cannot be rescheduled, players from both teams will not receive their scheduled salary. The memo also states the team with the outbreak will be responsible for any additional expenses incurred by the opposing team. The league saw an increase in COVID-19 vaccination rates this week. All 32 NFL teams, even as the official report, they are above a 50% vaccine threshold. In the meantime, the White House warning Americans we are at a critical point for the future of this pandemic as cases continue to rise nationwide, especially in the South, where one governor had some strong words for those who remain unvaccinated. Lorraine Gassides has the latest on the pandemic in America. The president on Thursday warning the country is at a pivotal moment in the pandemic. What's happening now is all the major scientific operations in this country and the 25 person group we put together are looking at all the possibilities of what's happening now. The U.S. averaging more than 40,000 new cases every day and less than 58% of people 12 and up fully vaccinated. The director of the CDC sounding the alarm on the Delta variant. It is one of the most infectious respiratory viruses we know of and that I have seen in my 20-year career. New projections released Wednesday from the COVID-19 Scenario Modeling Hub predicts the current surge of infections could possibly not peak until October. According to the White House, three states account for 40% of new cases, Texas, Missouri and Florida, all of which have low vaccination rates. Florida experiencing the nation's most significant increase. New cases are up by 490% over the last month. The state averaging 6,490 92 cases per day, a figure that has nearly doubled in one week and quadrupled in a month. In just one week from July 15th to July 21st, the state recorded 45,449 new cases. Daily hospital admissions up by nearly 55% in the last week. The governor on Thursday expressing no concern and assuring residents that lockdowns will not happen on his watch. If anyone is calling for lockdowns, you're not getting that done in Florida. We have a summer season here, just like last year. It started a little later this year. So you're going to have higher prevalence for the rest of July, probably into August, and then it goes back. Meanwhile, in other southern states like Alabama, where the rate of infections has doubled in the last week and vaccinations are the lowest in the country, the governor losing her patience with the unvaccinated. Folks supposed to have common sense. But it's time for to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks that are letting us down. And as the CDC discusses with White House officials the potential of changing mask guidelines for those who are vaccinated, an agency advisory panel is suggesting that a booster shot might be necessary for those who have compromised immune systems. But right now they're saying that in order to make that decision, they, de they need more data for the future. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. 
In other coronavirus news, 31 campers at a New York sleepaway camp have tested positive for COVID-19. Camp Pontiac in Copake, New York, says all of the campers infected are between the ages of 7 and 11 years old. Nearly all of them have now been sent home, along with 88 close contacts. The first positive case was on July 16th. 550 children started at the co-ed Camp Pontiac this summer. At the recommendation of New York's Department of Health, the camp is testing all unvaccinated campers twice this week. And the FDA said Thursday that as of June 30th, there had been 100 cases of a rare neurological condition among people who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's out of 12.8 million J&J &J vaccines administered. The condition is called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Out of the 100 cases reported, 95 people had to be hospitalized and one person died. Earlier this month, the FDA updated the J&J &J vaccine label to warn of the possible increased risk of the syndrome. There haven't been any reports of this complication related to the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Now to Miami, where the region's largest public hospital is once again dealing with a sharp rise in the number of hospitalizations due to COVID-19. Jorge Hernandez takes us inside to see what doctors and other healthcare staff are now dealing with. We had privileged access to the coronavirus units at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. Right now, 155 patients are battling the coronavirus and 91% of those infected have not been vaccinated. We're going to enter Jasmine's room. Today is her birthday. I was not vaccinated. I got sick together with all my children. Now from a hospital bed, Jasmine sends advice to those who have not been vaccinated. Get vaccinated. It's not worth it. Jose, another coronavirus patient, was reluctant to get vaccinated. No, 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 no. I had never been vaccinated. Why didn't you get vaccinated? Because I didn't want to. There is a patient who is 25 years old and he's lying face down because he could not breathe. This is the example of how COVID is attacking young people. We are at full capacity and there are patients waiting in the ER for a bed here, but we don't have available beds. Reported by Galo Arellano in Miami, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Let's go to Dr. Gustavo Ferrer. He's an ICU physician in Aventura, Florida. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Ferrer. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As we just saw, Florida is one of the states seeing a spike in cases. We just saw the situation specifically at Jackson Memorial in Miami. What are you seeing at your hospital? We also have seen in the last couple of weeks a uh, tremendous increase in the number of cases. Um, to give you an example, three weeks ago, our ICUs have one patient or two today are reaching capacity. So we, we see the spike in cases coming into the hospital and also going into the ICUs. There's also growing concern over breakthrough infections, that is, those who have been vaccinated still contracting COVID-19. What should people who are vaccinated do or know at this time? It is important to remain informed. The, uh, the research data keeps coming through. What we do know is that the great majority of the people that have breakthrough infections, they have milder cases. They are not the severe cases that we used to see and, and that we are seeing in the unvaccinated population. But still, you know, I think we are not out of the woods yet and we need to work together to go through this pandemic. 
Now, should the CDC, in your opinion, recommend indoor masking for the vaccinated once again? Because we saw all those recommendations or rules change recently. Yes, I, I do. And at the same day that the CDC uh, put the uh, or lifted the mask mandated, uh, I was in another media channel speaking about the same thing. Um, I do believe that the mask uh, help us keep a distance between each other. It's a physical barrier that sends an, a message that we're not uh, completely out of the woods with this pandemic. On that same note, seeing what you're seeing now, do you think the CDC called off the mask recommendation too early? And did individual states also loosen restrictions too fast? Absolutely. The, uh, the data is there. The evidence is there. We see states like California, they lifted all, all rules and all social distancing and mass mandated overnight. And four or five weeks later, they have now gone back to the same kind of rules. I think we need to realize that this is going to be in, in a, a pandemic that is going to be lasting with us for quite some time. We still need to see what's going to happen during the winter time. We know that the virus is ever changing and we we all need to be prepared for all of that. There's also growing concern among a rising cases in young children who, of course, are not eligible for the vaccine. So what can parents do to try to keep their kids safe, especially now that schools will be reopening quite soon? I think the, the encouraging part of this is that in children, we see that the cases are not severe or as severe as we see in, in the adult population. Um, the other thing is that we, you know, we need to weight the, the uh, evidence and, see, and make clear determinations after that. If we, if we go back to where we were in 2020, uh, kids in the schools are missing tons of activities that they're required and necessary for their well-being and perhaps just closing the schools is not a good idea. On the other hand, I do support the American Academy of Pediatricians that they've recommended recently that indoor activities should be with masks. And that is because it will send a message that we all need to be involved in this um, pandemic still. And when it comes to protecting those children, how soon can we expect vaccines for those kids under the age of 12? They're still on, on going on the research. Uh, we don't have data available yet. Um, both our pharmaceutical companies, Moderna and Pfizer, they have released a statement that they are getting closer to their analysis of the data and they will let us know before the end of the summer. So all of that has to be seen. Well, thank you so much for all this advice, Dr. Gustavo Ferrer, ICU physician in South Florida. Take care. Thank you. Likewise. A small group of Cuban-Americans launched boats from Miami earlier today, planning to approach Cuba in a show of support for people experiencing hardships on the island. Organizers expected approximately 100 boats to be part of the flotilla, but five boats were seen leaving from a Miami marina this morning. They planned to refuel in Key West before heading into the Florida Straits. Organizers say they would stay in international waters some 15 miles off the coast of Havana to launch fireworks and flares in support of those on the island. The U.S. Coast Guard said it's aware and will monitor the flotilla. Meanwhile, officials in Cuba are dismissing as irrelevant sanctions imposed by the Biden administration for human rights abuses. Edwin Piti has the latest on this from Washington, D.C. Edwin. 
That's right, Andrea. The United States is punishing Cuban officials for human rights abuses, namely during the recent anti-government protests there. In a statement Thursday, President Biden said, quote, I unequivocally condemn the mass detentions and child trials that are unjustly sentencing to prison those who dare to speak out in an effort to intimidate and threaten the Cuban people into silence. In the same statement, Biden says a key Cuban official and the government special forces unit will face new sanctions. They target Alvaro Lopez Miera, who leads Cuba's Ministry of the Revolutionary Armed Forces, also a government unit known as Boinas Negras for human rights abuses. The Boinas Negras, or Black Parade, are an elite unit of Cuba's special forces that the government deployed to suppress the demonstrations. Biden says the actions are just the beginning to stop individuals responsible for oppressing the Cuban people. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says her office will also enforce all financial sanctions, including those imposed Thursday. However, the Cuban regime doesn't seem to care about the new sanctions. Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez tweeted that the U.S. should sanction itself for all the police violence that takes place in the United States. The tweet reads, I refuse the unfounded and slanderous U.S. government sanctions against Army Corporal General Alvaro Lopez Miera and the National Special Brigade, it should rather apply unto itself the Magnitsky Global Act for Systematic Repression and police brutality that took the life of 1,021 persons in 2020. So while the Biden administration is hoping that sanctions and threats of more sanctions could force the Cuban regime to allow protests to go forward, the Cuban government is saying they won't have any impact. Live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thanks so much. And now the United States is punishing Cuban officials for human rights abuses, namely during the recent anti-government protests there. In a statement Thursday, President Biden said, quote, I unequivocally condemn the mass detentions and sham trials that are unjustly sentencing to prisoners that are there, those who dare to speak out in an effort to intimidate and threaten the Cuban people into silence. And now we're moving on to another major story, some major news from the Supreme Court. The Mississippi Attorney General Lynch Fitch on Thursday asking the High Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. The landmark 1973 Supreme Court ruling legalized abortion nationwide prior to viability, which can occur at around 24 weeks of pregnancy. Fitch wants the justices to allow a controversial Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks to go into effect. Mississippi's Gestational Age Act was passed in 2018, but has been blocked by two federal courts. Fitch's argument to the court came in a new brief in what will be the most significant abortion case the high court has heard in decades. Oral arguments will likely be heard in late fall or early winter with a decision expected by next June. And today we're learning the FBI got more than 4,500 tips in 2018 as part of a background investigation into then Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. The Bureau says it referred relevant tips to then President Trump's White House counsel. The revelations came in a June 30th letter released by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on Thursday. It came in response to a two-year-old re request from Senate Democrats asking for more information about the handling 
handling of the investigation. Kavanaugh's nomination process was marred by accusations from Dr. Christine Blasey Ford that he sexually assaulted her when they were in high school. Kavanaugh fiercely denied the accusation as well as other allegations that followed. And on Capitol Hill, GOP Representative Adam Kinzinger may be joining the select committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi suggested she may appoint him. Kinzinger was one of 10 Republican House members to vote for former President Trump's second impeachment. If added, Kinzinger and Representative Liz Cheney would be the only Republicans on the committee. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pulled his five GOP members from the panel after Pelosi rejected two of his choices. The select committee is set to hold its first hearing next week. And the Capitol Police Force, still recovering from the events of January 6th, officially has a new chief starting today. Tom Manger, who formerly led the Fairfax, Virginia Police Department, will be the next chief. The vacancy at the top was created when former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund resigned after the Capitol riot. Manger has served 42 years in law enforcement, including having served as chief for two of the largest police agencies in the Washington, D.C. area. The new chief says he's proud of the courage and dedication the men and women of the Capitol Police Department showed on January 6th. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. It's been just over three weeks since a condo building in Surfside, Florida, partially collapsed. Now, with recovery efforts over and the site cleared of most of the debris, a larger question looms over the multi-billion dollar condo economy in Florida. Andrew Peña explains. The Surfside, Florida condo tragedy sent shockwaves across not only the United States but the world. One month ago, the Champlain Tower building, located on the beach, collapsed, taking the lives of almost 100 people and leaving numerous others injured and traumatized. But beyond the human dimension of the tragedy, the ramifications of the incident on the economy, and specifically on the insurance industry, are already beginning to be seen. What is going to be the real impact in the short, medium, and long term for consumers' pockets? The impact is going to be tremendous because the properties that are on the coast are going to find that they're not going to be able to get insurance because the industry is going to get out of the market. Because the cost is going to be too much to cover catastrophic expenses that have happened and that may continue to happen. And the cost of property insurance policies in Florida are among the highest in the country. I've been a homeowner for 50 years and every year it's up and up and up. It's a trend that isn't happening in Florida or along the coastlines. Some part of the United States are becoming too risky to insure, at least at the cost that most people can afford. In California, for example, insurers have begun to flee fire-prone areas. Because of what we call global warming, the situation gets complicated, not only in Florida, but in all coastal areas. 
This attorney represents several homeowners affected by the Surfside building collapse. He says that so far insurance companies are cooperating with their clients. Insurance companies, in my experience, do not always behave well, but in this case they are behaving extremely well because the whole world is watching them, and obviously they have no defense in this case. Experts believe that the only solution for states like Florida would be to further strengthen building codes and restrict development near the beach to reduce risk, even though that does not guarantee that insurance companies will not raise prices. Reported by Ludis Del Rio, Andrew Pena, U News. Also making headlines, on Thursday, President Biden signed a bill to strengthen the Crime Victims Fund. That fund helps crime survivors in a number of ways, including assistance with medical costs, legal fees, mental health services, and emergency housing. The bipartisan bill aims to replenish the fund and ensure it's stable for the foreseeable future. All 100 senators voted for the measure on Tuesday. In his remarks Thursday, Biden also called on lawmakers to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. And also in D.C., the city's Metro Police is investigating a shooting in the downtown area. At least two adult males suffered non-life-threatening gunshot wounds. They are being treated at area hospitals. Police are looking for a male leaving the scene in what they described as an older black sedan. They are asking the public for any additional information on that suspect and possibly any others. And out west, authorities in Arizona say the suspect in Sunday's deadly shooting rampage has died of injuries sustained in his gun battle with police. The 35-year-old suspect had been hospitalized in extremely critical condition since being taken into custody. Police say the rampage began in a Tucson neighborhood when he shot at civilians while firefighters responded to a blaze. One person was killed. Authorities have also identified another victim whose body was found inside the buried home or that burned home, that victim was shot before the fire even began. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.